Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he's a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post for conciliation pacifies great offenses. There is an evil I've seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lonely place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom, for a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Solomon has been reflecting on the meaning of life, the significance of life. The search for meaning. His attention now turns to the subjects of the wise and the foolish. And in the last chapter, Solomon reminded the reader that wisdom is valuable. But remember, wisdom is vulnerable. And in spite of wisdom's vulnerabilities, wisdom is to be preferred to foolishness. By the way, the word folly appears nine times in chapter 10. Now the preacher describes some individuals in verses 1 through 7 and 12 through 18 in verse 20, some injuries in verses 8 through 11 and 19, some insights. And so the chapter is about individuals, the foolish and the wise, injuries, things that foolish things will cause, and then some insights in chapter in verse 19. And so in this chapter, the preacher gives tribute to wisdom's excellence 
and then warns of folly's dangers. The wise person's heart is directed to do what's right, it says in verse 2. The wise person speaks wise words in verse 12. Remember, just like in the New Testament, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is really inside of you will leak out. The fool's heart directs them to do evil, it says in verse 2. The fool's conduct betrays the fool's heart in verse 3. The fool is often tragically given great authority in verses 6 and 7. But when a fool is given great authority, does responsibility and authority in and of itself bring wisdom? No. And so, the fool is consumed with his or her own words in verses 12 through 14. The fool is exhausted by even the most basic or simple tasks, according to verse 15. And remember when Solomon, the preacher, uses the term fool, he's not talking about a stupid person. He's not even necessarily speaking of an ignorant person. When Solomon uses the word fool, he's meaning the person who's void of moral judgment. The fool is the person who refuses to recognize the lordship of God and the wisdom that is given in the word of God. The fool is the person who relies on himself or herself for information. So what about those who are in authority? The preacher says, look. Even when a fool is in charge, stay calm. <laughs> Don't get angry with your boss in verse four. Now the preacher will give a series of wise words that seem to have a lot in common with the book of Proverbs. Even as I was reading it, you probably thought this sounds a whole lot like the book of Proverbs. Well, it is. It's a series of what seems like disconnected challenges, but there is a little bit of a, of a connection. The preacher points the reader to a life of wisdom in spite of life's changes and challenges. You've probably heard the expression that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're the wisest person who's ever lived, that's Solomon... People who <laughs> think unwisely, who speak unwisely, who act unwisely, they seem like fools. As a matter of fact, when you read Solomon's words, the word fool, fools, foolish, and folly come up a lot. As a matter of fact, Solomon uses the word or some form of the word a hundred and twenty eight times. You know, I read the story of a petty criminal named Rafiq Abdul Mortland. And he wasn't really cut out for a life of crime. At the age of 38, he went on a crime spree. He was dubbed by the FBI the Rolaids bandit. 
He was called the Roll Aids Bandit because when he would rob a place in Hennepin County in Minnesota, he would always ask the clerk for some Roll Aids. He would say, give me some Roll Aids. He goes, this is putting way too much stress on me. Apparently, robbery gave him a bad case of indigestion. Yes, crime and foolishness can cause heartburn and and heartache. Wisdom, on the other hand, is healthy. Do you realize that there are no known ill side effects from wisdom? Wisdom is 100% doctor recommended. So Solomon will talk about foolishness in four prominent areas of life. He'll talk about the problem of foolishness in the little things in verses one through three in leadership in verses four through seven and verses 16 through 19. He'll talk about foolishness in labor in verses eight through 10. He's talking about foolishness in language in verses 12 through 14. So it begins with, again, a recourse of what's happened in the past chapter. The foolishness in the little things. Look what he says in verse 1. Dead flies putrefy the perfume's ointment and causes it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. He gives a vivid illustration of how the smallest dead thing can make something otherwise Fragrant, leave a lasting odor. Have you noticed the the difference between the word odor and fragrance? The preacher has access, by the way, to the world's finest perfumes and costly spices. He speaks of the seductive power of fragrance plays in the arsenal of the prostitute in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 17. And so that's where we get the saying. Oh, this is a fly in the ointment. This is Solomon's poetic way of saying how a tiny foolish act can destroy the powerful fragrance of a person's dignity and respect and character and contribution and reputation. And it's true, isn't it? It only takes one foolish word or one foolish deed to ruin your career. I think about all of the politicians who have thrown away a congressional seat or a place in government for something that was stupid or avoidable. And of course, <laughs> there's always the minister. Richard Nixon's defeat to John Kennedy began when a live TV camera caught some perspiration on his upper lip and his five o'clock shadow. And all of a sudden, people didn't like him. Over and over and over again, giants have been brought down by the simple, stupid, silly, little Things In 1859, at the age of 24, Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon. He was 24 years old. He entitled it Little Sins. And this is some of the, the sermon. Quote, the best of men have always been afraid of little sins. Men with their eyes well opened by divine grace have seen a whole 
hell, slumbering in the smallest sin, gifted with a microscopic power. Their eyes have seen a world of iniquity hidden in a single act or thought or imagination of sin. And hence they have avoided it with horror, have passed by and would have nothing to do with it. Little sins lead to great ones. Nay, stand back. Little though the temptation be, I dread thee for thy little temptation be. I dread thee for thy little temptation leads to something greater and thy small sin makes way for something worse. And then he gives this illustration. Years ago, there was not a single thistle in the whole of Australia. Some Scotsman who very much admired thistles rather more than I'd thought it was a pity that a great island like Australia should be without that marvelous and glorious symbol of his great nation. And by the way, the thistle is one of the great symbols of the Scotsman. And so he says, he therefore collected a packet of thistle seeds and sent it over to one of his friends in Australia. Well, when it was landed, the officer might have said, oh, let it in. It's just a little one. Here is but a handful of thistle down. Oh, let it come in. It will be sown in a garden. The Scots will grow in their gardens. They think it a fine flower, no doubt. Let them have it. It is but mean for their amusement. Ah, yes, but it's just a little one. But now whole districts of country are covered with it. And it has become the plague and pest of farmers. It was a little one. But all the worse for that, it multiplied and grew. If it had been a great evil, all men would have set to work to crush it. Take heed of the thistle seed. Little sins are like it. Take care that they're not admitted into your heart. People used to preach like that. They used to say stuff like that. The little, little things, a small look, the smallest flirtation, the edge at the tone of the voice. It's the little padding of the expense account. It's the little experimentation. It's just the smallest thing. That's what he's talking about. And so a wise man's heart, look what it says in verse two, is at his right hand. But a fool's heart is at his left. Does he mean something political by this? No. It's not about politics. In the ancient times, the place of honor and the place of power and the place of glory was at the right hand. Obedience in the little things means that you begin in the place of honor and glory and wisdom. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's At his left, what he's talking about is when you begin from a position of wisdom or you begin from a position of foolishness, you're going to wind up in a wise place or you're going to wind up in a foolish place. You've all heard the little ditty growing up. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And for all this because of a... Horseshoe nail. Is it true? Is it possible that something so small can create such big problems? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, I heard about a hose clamp. A dollar and sixty nine cents. A hose clamp 
on an ambulance broke and the ambulance overheated and broke down and the passenger that it was supposed to be carrying to the hospital died. Does that make sense to you? That something so stupid, so insignificant, so small could create such big problems. But when you apply it in the New Testament, can you imagine Jesus in the wilderness overcome by hunger and the devil stumbles into the situation and says, what harm is it if you take this little piece of stone and turn it into a piece of bread? What's the harm? Forty days without food and water. You're the sinless son of God. What is the big deal by just simply speaking a word and satisfying your hunger? That Jesus would no longer be the spotless lamb. He would be a spotted lamb. It would have only taken one thing, one thing, one thing, and there's no atonement for sin and there's no salvation. And you're lost. Without hope. Estranged from God. Distant from God. But God has done everything necessary to give you life and love, forgiveness and hope. A real Savior lived a perfect, spotless life. A holy life, by the way, marked by purity. You know what this should cause you to think about? Your life. Your life. What is the tiny nail? What is the little crust of bread? What is the small temptation that lurks in the back of your heart and that causes you to compromise? Horatius Bonner wrote, quote, A holy life is made up of a multitude of small things. It's the little things of the hour and not the great things of the age that fill up a life like that of the Apostle Paul or John or David Brainerd or Henry Martin. Little words, not eloquent speeches or sermons. It's little deeds. It's it's not miracles or battles. It's not one great heroic effort or martyrdom that makes up the holy life. It's making the small decisions each and every day. You're going to get up and you're going to read your Bible and you're going to go to church and you're going to love your wife and you're going to love your husband and you're going to take care of your kids. It's making the small decision time after time, point after point. It's praying. It's calling out to God and saying, not help me make the big decision of my life. It's help me make the smallest decision to love you and serve you. And so in verse three, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he's a fool. So the fool begins from a foolish position. He lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. The fool will act out his or her foolishness. And so we see foolishness. Also in leadership, look at verse four. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post for conciliation pacifies great offenses. The picture is of a leader. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, here's the picture. The picture is a person who shouts and screams at everyone around them. The leader shouts and screams as a verbal abuser who thinks everyone 
exists to satisfy himself. Of late, who is one of the great examples of this? Our good friend Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. He yells and screams, takes his army and his navy and planes and he fires on his own citizens and he yells and he screams and he curses. He thinks that he's above everyone else and that he has the right to oppress and he has the right to cruel language and he has a right to kill them if he gets in his way. Now think about that. Roger Kipling wrote, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, you'll be a man, my son. How do you know you're maturing and how do you know you're growing up? It's when the whole world is falling apart all around you and one person decides to do what's right. To stay calm. You know. He's talking about one of the great dangers of leadership, and that's what the Bible talks about, the blind leading the blind. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, will they not both fall into a ditch? No wonder we should choose our leaders carefully. You know, usually leadership isn't a big deal until there's a crisis. Leadership becomes a problem when there's a crisis in government. Leadership becomes a problem when there's a crisis in the church. Leadership becomes a problem when there's a crisis in the family. And that's when you need someone mature and responsible. Solomon left the legacy of wise leadership for his sons, but they refused to follow his legacy. By the way, if you've ever had a chance to read the books of First and Second Kings, the two books are studies... In some wise, but mostly foolish kings. Remember the king who was morally wise was the king who listened to the Lord and obeyed the Lord. And by the way, in ancient Israel, when the king listened to the Lord and obeyed the Lord, how did it go with the people? Good. But when the king refused to listen to God and refused to obey God, how did it go with the nation? If your pastor or the church leaders hear God and obey God, how, how goes it with the church? Things go pretty good. If the pastor refuses to hear from the Lord and obey the Lord, how goes it with the church? Bad. If moms and dads in the home obey the Lord and listen to the Lord, and submit to the Lord, how goes it in the home? Good. If moms and dads refuse to listen to the Lord, refuse to obey the Lord, how goes it in the home? Bad. It seems like it should be way more complicated. When the king was careless, when the king was ruthless, when the king was foolish, the entire nation was at risk. In 1954, in a speech, Winston Churchill reflected on his leadership during World War II when he rallied the British Isles to withstand against the Nazi threat. And he said, now, I have never accepted what many people have kindly said, namely that I inspired the nation. It was the nation and the race 
dwelling around the globe that had the lion's heart. I had the luck to be called upon to give the roar. That is good. But he put it in the right perspective. The king who reflects a people who reflects the king. People who love the Lord, hear the Lord, obey the Lord. And then he talks about leaders who appoint the unqualified in verse five. There is an evil I've seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. What's the evil? He's going to talk about it. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lonely place. In other words, foolish leaders put the unqualified into positions of leadership while ignoring those who should be serving. Strong leaders have no problem surrounding themselves with strong people. And you'll note that weak leaders surround themselves with weak people. And so Solomon understands something. He understands something that if you are going to be wise in the nation and wise in the community and wise in your church and wise in your home, then you've got to have qualified leadership. In verse six, it says folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. When you exalt immaturity. When you exalt foolishness, you're going to reap something difficult. Peter Drucker made the observation that there's a little correlation between a leader's effectiveness and his or her intelligence or imagination or knowledge. Is it possible for a business to have the most uninspiring, unimaginative and unthinking person and still they're going to operate just fine? Brilliant people are sometimes the most ineffective leaders, Drucker writes, quote, they never have learned the insights that become effective only through hard, systematic work. In other words, wouldn't you rather have someone who isn't the smartest person, but is actually willing to do the work? That's the point. In verse 7, he says, I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. And by the way, that's exactly what will happen when Solomon dies and his son takes over and he gets rid of the mature leadership and he appoints his buddies and he listens to their stupid advice. And here's the point. Sometimes it makes way more sense to put the people who are mature and sensible on top of the horse. And then he goes not only about foolishness in, in leadership, but also foolishness in labor. Look in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. Now, here, here's what he's basically talking about. There are people who work wisely and there are people who work foolishly. We've all heard the expression work smarter, not harder. Solomon has little sympathy for the foolish, the ignorant, the ineffective laborer. Now, you're, you're, you're looking at it. He who digs a pit will fall into it. That couldn't happen, right? I mean, no foolish person would dig a big, expensive swimming pool in his or her backyard and fall into it, right? That couldn't happen. 
It can happen. It does happen. I heard the story from a mortuary friend who uh, was at a funeral and someone was tasked to be a pallbearer. And so this pallbearer is carrying the casket to the grave site. He slips at the edge of the grave and he falls into the pit. It's one of those graves where they're like two coffins deep, you know, where they dig it extra, extra deep. So you can put one coffin down at the bottom and you can put another coffin on the top. And so this guy goes right out from underneath the coffin, goes into the pit and you hear this thud and he lands on the bottom of the pit. The point Does it make sense to watch where you're walking? Is it possible that you could wind up prematurely in the wrong place? How many times do you watch the news and you hear of a competent, accomplished hiker who falls off the side of a mountain? It happens, doesn't it? If you don't watch where you're going, no matter how good you are, you can slip and fall. So the chapter describes individuals, the wise and the fool. And now the chapter touches on injuries. There's a series of warnings. Digging a well, lest you fall into it, verse 8. Demolishing an old wall, lest a snake bite you. You have to understand something. In the ancient world, when they would demolish things and build things, snakes love to make their homes in cool places when it's hot. And they love to make their homes in cool places. Cool places when it's hot and hot places when it's cool. And if you're digging on on a site and you forget that snakes live there, you can get hurt. I grew up in the Mojave Desert. When I was in the Mojave Desert, at one point we had a little, little tiny kitten. And I discovered the kitten in back of our washing machine. And it was bloated and dead. And I turned, and there next to it was a tiny Mojave green rattlesnake. There are rattlesnakes everywhere in the Mojave Desert. And if you forget where you are, if you forget who lives there with you, you can get hurt, or people around you can get hurt. That's the point that he's making. The worker forgets. Serpents and snakes are lurking nearby. And that's part of the point that the writer is making. The wise worker keeps a careful eye out for danger. In verse 9, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who splits wood may be endangered by it. Now, Solomon, early on in his career, was in charge of a building project. You know what the building project was? To build the temple on the mount in Jerusalem. By the way, 80,000 people were tasked to quarry stone for the new temple. For those of you who have been to Israel with me in the past or who are going in the present, we go to the temple mount, we go to the rabbi's tunnel, you will see blocks of stone larger than these screens that are made by hand, chiseled out, and quarried. And think about this. 
In first Kings chapter five, verses 17 and 18, it says, quote, and the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders and the Gebelites quarried them and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple, unquote. By the way, do you think back in Solomon's day there was a temple union? No. You think there's a stone quarry union? No. 80,000 people are tasked to do the job. I'm pretty sure that at some point someone came to Solomon and said, Solomon, did you hear about Shlomo? No, tell me what happened to Shlomo. He was chiseling out a great big piece of rock. It slipped and it fell on him and it crushed him. What? He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. When you have 80,000 people quarrying stones to make the temple, is it possible that people could get hurt? You know what happened in today, in today's history? It was several years ago today that the Panama Canal was built. I read it on my radio program today. People remember that we paid $10 million to purchase the Panama Canal, but you know what people forget? They forget that 24,000 people died digging the ditch in the Panama jungle. 50,000 people died in Vietnam. Can you imagine? How, how do you forget something like that? How do you forget the 24,000 people who labor day in and day out and then they die of malaria? Here's the point. Things can happen. He who splits wood may be endangered by it. Moses anticipated a man chopping wood in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5. When a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down a tree and a head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of the cities of refuge and live. Question, is it possible to die on the job? And so, what is the point that he's making? When you act wisely, you can stay safe. When you act foolishly, you could die. He says in verse 11, you might be a fool. Verse 11, a serpent may bite when it's not charmed. The babbler is no different. You've got to understand something. He goes from leadership to language in Solomon's court, you have to understand something. This is 1000 BC. And in 1000 BC, there are snake charmers in the court. I don't know if you've ever been into a circumstance where you've seen a snake char charmer. My wife and I will be going to India pretty soon. The last time I was in India, I met a snake charmer. The guy's playing the little flute. And the cobra is coming out of the basket and the cobra is waving back and forth in front of this guy playing a flute. And I am freaking out. And the guy goes, 
It is no problem. I am going to share the secret with you. He takes the cobra and he says, See, look, the things are gone. It is a, it's a tourist trick that I use to fool the tourists. But guess what? What if the things aren't gone? A serpent may bite when it's not charmed. I actually did not understand this verse until I talked to a snake charmer. What does he mean if it's not charmed? I'm going to suggest to you that it means even back in those days they had clever ways of fooling the tourists. But if you don't know the trick and you try to charm the snake and the snake still has fangs, you could get hurt. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon said, there's a time to speak and there's a time to keep your mouth shut. The philosopher Zeno said, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we talk. That's a good rule of tongue. And so in verse 12, he says, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. This sounds very much like Proverbs 10.32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Most of the really bad things that happen in our life begin when we say something foolish. So he's talking about foolishness in the little things. Foolish things in leadership. Foolish things in language. Clearly, James says that we can control a horse or a boat with something as small as a bridle or a rudder. But what about that little lingua? That tiny instrument that's inside of your mouth. And clearly, speech can be used for good or evil. I was listening to a story of a pastor. He was talking about growing up in Pennsylvania. And when he was a young man, he lived on a farm and they had a farm next door and he loved blackberries. So he goes to the edge of their farm and he's picking the blackberries. And pretty soon he finds himself on the neighbor's farm picking the neighbor's blackberries. And the farmer runs out and he goes, get off my property. If I see you on my property, I'm going to skin you alive. And the little boy covered with blackberries, you know, goes home. He's crying. He's scared. And the dad gathers the blackberries together, goes to the farmer and gives him a bucket of blackberries. He goes, I am so sorry. My son came over. It will never happen again. And the man said, I don't know what I was thinking. And I don't even know why I yelled at the, at the little boy. I don't even like blackberries. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. It is true, isn't it? That a calm answer can turn away wrath. Robert Frost wrote, half the world is composed of people who have something to say and can't. The other half who have nothing to say, but they keep on saying it. Nothing is more frequently opened by mistake than your mouth. It was Jesus who said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things in Matthew 12, 35. If there's one place 
if there's one place where it's easy to find the fool, it's by listening to what he or she has to say, isn't it? And so, in verse 13 and 14, it says, The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. Now think about that. Most people know that there's a time to be silent, to keep your mouth shut. But the fool has to talk when everyone knows that the most important thing you need to do is keep your mouth shut. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Solomon has talked about the untamed tongue in verse 11, the unkind tongue in verse 12. Now he speaks of the unwise tongue in verse 13 and the unreasonable tongue in verse 14. Some people love the sound of their own voice. Roxanne Lulop labels an undisciplined talker as harm, H-A-R-M, hit and run mouth. I read a great gravestone for the hit and run mouth. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. There comes a time when even the fool will cease to speak. Solomon speaks of the person who pretends and forecasts the future and gets lost on his or her way to work. These are the people. Now, this is what's interesting to Solomon. Solomon watches people going to and fro and getting lost. And he's surprised and shocked that the people who get lost seem to be the people who tell you how to get from one place to the next. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm not going to trust that person. They don't know where they're going. There's a spiritual application. If you don't know where you're going when you die, if you don't know where you're going in life, if you don't know how to get there, it surely makes sense to find someone who does know where they're going and how to get there. Over and over again, Solomon says, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22, Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what the day will, will hold forth. Over and over again, he's saying, remember, death is inevitable. Life is uncertain. You know, I heard the story of a man who was trying to get a drink of Coke. And he died when the machine fell over on him. He, he, he was one of those stupid people who he if you're a kid, you'll remember that you used to could open up a Coke machine and you could pop the bottle. You could pop the top, remember? And so here is this guy. He's thinking, I'm going to drink this Coke. And he, he pulls the machine towards him to try and drink the Coke inside of the bottle. And the whole machine drops on top of him and kills him. I know you're wondering, are there people like that? Yes. 
A Toronto lawyer named Gary Hoy was demonstrating the safety of windows in a downtown Toronto skyscraper. He crashed through a pane with his shoulder, plunged 24 floors into the courtyard. Here's this guy. He's going. He's he's held a meeting to talk about how this glass is absolutely safe. And he pushes against it and plummets to his death. Ken Charles Barger accidentally shot himself to death in Newton, North Carolina. He was in bed. The phone rang. And instead of reaching for the phone, he reached for his Smith and Wesson 38 that was on his nightstand. When he went to answer the phone, the weapon discharged and killed him. A news story told of six people who drowned while trying to rescue a chicken. That fell into a well in Egypt. An 18 year old farmer was the first to descend into the 60 foot well. He drowned. Apparently an undercurrent caught him and took him. His sister and two brothers tried to save him. None of them could swim. They too were taken by the current. Two elderly farmers came to help. They were pulled by the same undercurrent. The bodies of the six were pulled out of a well in the village of Natslet Imara, south of Cairo. The chicken was also pulled out alive. Do you, do you understand what Solomon is saying? He's basically saying, when you use your hands, <laughs> use your head at the same time. And so in verses 16 and 17, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Solomon has mentioned the easygoing leader in verses five through seven. Now he speaks of the engineered leader. One translation puts verses 15 or, or 16 and 17 this way unlucky the land whose king is a young pup and whose princes party all night long. Lucky the land whose king is mature, where the princes behave themselves and don't drink themselves silly. Now you have to understand something. Dynastic kings were common. Some people acquire offices with the help of family and friends. Their leadership is orchestrated, arranged, or negotiated. And so he says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Because guess what? You eat a very light meal in the morning in the ancient world. And you work and you work and you work and you work and you eat in the evening. That's part of the point. They shouldn't be working. They should be working in the, in the morning and not feasting. The government, the church, the family is at a disadvantage when leaders are immature and incompetent. So how do you know how to identify the mature leader? I'll tell you how. The mature leader will say, it's my fault. I'm responsible. Many of you remember the story of Harry Truman. He wrote on his desk, the buck stops here. This is where the excuses stop. There's no one to blame. The leader who is in charge is also the person who has to be responsible for what happens. Whether it's in government, whether it's in the community, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your home. 
At some point, you have to stop blaming the kids. At some point, you have to stop blaming your wife. At some point, you have to take responsibility for the leadership in your own home. And so, he then talks about procrastination and judgment in verses 18 and 19. Look what it says. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Let's put this in, in modern terms. We live in a world where it's easy to stay home, drink beer, and watch TV. So we're going to reread this. Because of laziness, the beer belly grows. Laziness gets bigger and bigger, but the house starts to fall apart. The only things that seem to grow are his debt and his belly. Now, when you see a person's debt and belly growing and the house falling apart, Solomon has no sympathy for the lazy person. As a matter of fact, how do you think God views the lazy? Over and over again, the Bible warns against the slothful. The Bible promises blessing for people who work hard. And it promises danger and poverty for the person who refuses to work. No wonder in the New Testament it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so in verse 19, it says, a feast is made for laughter. And wine makes merry, but money answers everything. The preacher adds a little note about the evil leader. He basically says there's a right way and a wrong way to do almost everything. He talks in verse 20. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may, may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Now, I, I want you to think about what's, what you're reading. Solomon is warned about the untamed tongue, the unkind tongue, the unwise tongue, the unreasonable tongue. And now he talks about the unfaithful tongue. Tongue. Remember, all of these are associated with foolishness. Have you ever heard the expression, hey, where did you find that out? And somebody said, a little bird told me. This is where it comes from. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10. A little bird told me. Let's be honest here. Other than pirate parrots, do birds talk? No, birds don't talk. So what's Solomon saying? Here's what Solomon's saying. A wise person doesn't say in private something that he or she doesn't want heard in public. That's the principle. Don't, if you say it in private but are absolutely horrified of it becoming public knowledge, Solomon's position, don't say it. By the way, this has probably been most recently manifested in a thing called wiki 
leaks. The State Department was horrified because the things that they communicated in private now became public knowledge. But isn't this exactly what the New Testament says? That what you say silently may one day be shouted from the rooftops. My advice? Don't do anything that you wouldn't be ashamed to see on the front cover of the Denver Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post. If you're doing it, beware that one day you might see it on the front page of a newspaper. You know, there's information that's given to us in the Bible. In Proverbs 14, 7, it says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Here's what the Bible says. Haven't you ever wondered, what do I do with the fool in my life? The Bible's answer, walk away. I know what you're thinking. What if it's my husband? What if it's my children? What if, what if I have to be with them? The answer's found in Psalm 107. If there's true repentance, restore them. Look at Psalm 107, verse 2, verse 8, verses 21 through 22. The testimony of a former fool can be helpful. Especially if the fool has recognized his or her foolishness, wickedness. God is greater, isn't he? Is it possible? Now, this is not a time to raise your hand or shout out the answer. But I want you to think of the stupidest thing that you've ever said or done. Just quietly, in the privacy of your own mind and your own heart. Be sure that God in his grace and his mercy can even take care of that. When I was a very young pastor, sometimes I said stupid things, wicked things, wrong things. And my wife said, God's going to get you. When you least expect it, God is going to get you. You keep saying these things. And one of these days, the Lord is going to get you. And I had a particularly foolish, stupid, wicked thing that I said. I'm even reluctant to tell you, but I will. There was a balloon accident in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it made all of the news. It was a horrific thing. The, the balloon was exploding. And a, and a man tragically jumped to his death. And his wife got on the news. And she wasn't the most attractive woman in the world. And I turned to my wife and I said, he jumped. He committed suicide. And she goes, God's going to get you. That wicked, stupid, foolish statement, God's going to get you. As soon as she said those words, the phone rang. And guess who was on the phone? Hi, my husband just recently died in a ballooning accident. And I was wondering if you would do the funeral. Oh, yes, I, I just saw that on TV. Oh, yeah, what did you say? How did I look? Traumatized. Grieving. When you least expect, 
you know, yeah, you can laugh at me now. But I got to tell you something. When you least expect it, God will take your mouth and he will embark on a course of action of cleansing. Where there's restoration, there's proclamation. Let me tell you something. Wisdom is a lesson often learned in hard circumstances. We can say and do foolish things, but we can say and do wise things at the same time. And so guess what? When you decide to say and do something that's wise instead of foolish, you can begin to declare the saving power of God. You can point to the reality that there is a God in heaven who can change your heart and alter your mouth and change your life so that you can become someone useful instead of useless. And so that you can be someone who has wise words instead of foolish words to say. Foolishness in the little things. Foolishness in the little things can destroy you. My advice? Do what's right in the small things and the medium things and the large things. We've got two more chapters to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that sometimes we're wise. And if we're honest, most times we're foolish. And Lord, we know that. Uh, that if we are going to be men and women who love you and who represent you, who can be used by you. We will do things that will either qualify or disqualify us. Lord, sometimes we say and do stupid things that under most circumstances should create an atmosphere where we could never be used by you. And the very fact that we're used by you at all is a testimony to your grace and your mercy and your ability to forgive us and love us and restore us. Lord, we have no one to blame but ourselves for our stupidity and foolishness. And we have no one to thank but you for grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and hope. And so again, Lord, for that person who's done something really stupid, really wrong, really foolish. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that that's forgivable. That there's cleansing and washing. There's hope and there's restoration. And in the not too distant future, there's even usefulness. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would be used by you in a remarkable way, in a wise way, in a glorious way to present the gospel, to present love, to present hope, to present forgiveness, to present grace. In Jesus name. Amen.